Hello, my name is Deborah Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of American Anthropologist, and this is Anthropological Airwaves. Welcome to this two-part special feature on decolonizing museums, which was recorded at the Museum Ethnographers Group Conference April 12th and 13th at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, United Kingdom. In this first episode, Legacies and Futures, we will hear about the challenges of decolonizing museums from the viewpoint of practitioners. Faye Balsi, Assistant Curator at the Pitt Rivers, and Laura von Broekhoven, Director of the Pitt Rivers, speak from their perspectives about what practitioner-focused decolonization initiatives might look like and about the anxieties, ambivalences, and dissonances of decolonizing work. We will also hear from Rachel Minot, a former research assistant at the Birmingham Museums Trust and curator of the exhibit, The Past is Now, Birmingham and the British Empire. Minot discusses the power imbalances among and between museum staff and other collaborators and stakeholders. Decolonize your mind, reclaim your expression, start your own struggles, find out the intersections, dismantle your oppression, then a museum in New York is facing backlash after a white candidate was appointed as curator of its African art exhibit. Even though the woman has a PhD in African, African art history and previously had experience in similar projects, many have questioned why the Brooklyn Museum didn't hire a person of color for the job. The museum has defended its choice, saying it is continuing to work on equality issues and will take all concerns into account. You may have heard about the recent controversial hiring of a white woman as the curator of the African art collection at the Brooklyn Museum. Many pointed to the problems of diversity within the museum, but what you probably haven't heard about is the call for the Brooklyn Museum to form a decolonization commission. Will the museum listen to the communities it claims to serve, or will it continue business as usual? Summed up in the banners dropped at last week's action, they want the art, but not the people. Hi, I'm Chris Green with Anthropological Airways, and I'm sitting here with Faye Belsey, the Deputy Head of Collections at the Pitt Rivers Museum. She is the organizer for the Museum Ethnographers Group's annual meeting, which we are currently at. I wanted to start by having you introduce the Museum Ethnographers Group. Okay, so the Museum Ethnographers Group was established a rather long time ago, uh, really for people who work in museum ethnography in the UK, and so curators primarily, I think, initially, but also educators, conservators, anyone who works in a museum that had a collection of ethnographic material. And so it was really a subject specialist network so that uh, museum ethnographers could meet, talk about issues that were shared and shared concerns, share expertise, share knowledge. So could you talk a little bit about this conference and the history of this conference? How long have they been meeting and uh, what is the, the theme of this year's conference? So the MEG, um, which is much less of a mouthful than the Museum Ethnographers Group, so I use the acronym for now. But um, to my knowledge, there from the very early establishment, there has been an annual meeting, which has formed this kind of conference. 
each year the theme of the conference varies and whatever the host is so it's hosted by different museums in the UK whatever the host museum might suggest as a theme that they think is relevant pertinent that they can kind of contribute to so um, about a year ago we got a new director at the Pitt Rivers Museum, um, Laura Van Brookhoven, and she is really keen to look quite critically at the Pitt Rivers, our practices, and try and make some changes to um, our approach, our outlook, our displays. So we felt like now it's apt to talk about decolonizing. I'm still really reluctant to use this term because I, I think the term itself is quite problematic um, and has become somewhat of a buzzword recently and that, you know, the idea is that you would de- you're decolonize and that's it, job done. Uh, but it's um, quite a long process and, and I've been to a few conferences recently which have discussed the theme or the idea on more of a moral and ethical plane, plane and theoretical plane. But I'm a museum practitioner, so I want to know, like, what does it mean to decolonize and how do we do that? So we really wanted a conference that would focus on practice. Um, and that that's really Meg's ethos is really to share practice, good, bad, and learn from each other. We're sitting here with Laura Van Brokhoven, the director of the Pitt Rivers Museum. And you had a really interesting talk this morning that addressed a lot of the decolonizing issues with the Pitt Rivers Museum. One of the things that I think I'd like to have you start with is sort of talk to us about the types of challenges that you face in this position in decolonizing the museum just kind of broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I think there's there's a there, there's a huge amount of challenges, um, and let's say that um, they come down to several elements. And I think it's it's once you so there's different challenges when one is in a position of power, as in being the director of a place, compared to when I was formerly two years ago I was the head of the curatorial team of three museums. And there's different power balances there, and then. Originally, when I came in as a one-day-a-week curator into a museum, it was a very different power balance again. Um, and then being outside of the museum is a different power balance again. So I think that's where we have to be always very conscious. And I think it's good when you're conscious of those sorts of structures yourselves, knowing why certain people are so... Um, at times desperate for change to happen, at times cannot understand why things go so slowly. Um, and at times people are sort of wanting also now being at the top of an institution, seeing how many, how many, uh, different aspects, both sideways and upward, you know, upwards, you still have to challenge. And then also trying to see how do you align a staff that's very diverse in their interests and in their agendas. And I think, um, I don't know if I can reference the conference, but Rachel Mino spoke about, you know, the past is now the, 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 the co-curation and, and sort of how are those all those agendas kind of fighting each other. We had very similar things happening when we had the hashtag decolonizing museum um, uh, project, which was a project that stretched out from 2011 till 2016 in the Netherlands, where you could see how some of these decolonization is really for some people is this cognitive dissonance. They've always believed that they were doing the right thing. 
and that they are the ones who have the authority and that they are. The, and I think that sort of is, so, so a lot of the, we, we, in, in that project, we sat together with 40 very critical feminist thinkers, many of them, most of them, uh, um, people of color, as I think they say in the US. And for a lot of the curators, it was really like being slapped in the face. And we needed it. So that's the sort of, so there's a lot of kind of work that needs to be done and a willingness to do the work. And at times, and I think in the, in the Netherlands, the whole confrontational part is easier than in the UK, where things tend to be more, I don't know, people are kinder here, but at the same time, also at times, very um, difficult topics, people will sort of manage around them. <laughs> So it's a very different way of addressing things. So that, to me, was a learning process, um, and is a learning process. And, it's, and so therefore, it's a constancy of, and I think that's why um, I reference the anxious times, because it's also an anxious time for yourself, where you're kind of grappling with your own whiteness and the fact that there's a lot that you're just not, you're just blind to, you're oblivious to it uh, happening and people being um, subject to it. Uh, the fact that a lot of my friends who are very involved in this sort of work really do suffer from our um, you know, inaptitude of, of working with these things. I think so those are some of the challenges that are sort of usually not addressed and you only experience them when, once you're through many, many decades of doing this sort of work. And then um, I suppose... Coming into the Pitt Rivers Museum, I think some of the challenges are very different from from the Netherlands because they're uh, because each museum has to do its own process because they are localized um, and and so the Pitt Rivers Museum is I mean it's one of these museums that everybody discusses in museum studies or any kind of anthropology you know or even archaeology it's the the place that gets discussed <laughs> as a sort of museum of the museum. There's uh, the the challenges of great listed buildings. There's uh, challenges of finances. I mean, everything here is done on a shoestring budget compared to the Netherlands where we have a lot of money. I didn't realize it at the time, <laughs> I guess, but uh, the investment from national investment was really big. And then here in the UK, we're actually, the University of Oxford actually is seen as a very elite uh, posh and rich institution and it is in essence but so that's where you think okay so how do I take those budgets which for the museum is very small and and then there's small parts where you really kind of say okay how do I find a different donor base how do I find um, institutions and foundations that are willing to work with us how do I find the places where we can get the funding to do the work that we need to do and I think that's um, we're not there yet, uh, um, but uh, we are working on it. And I think it's, I've kind of, so I came in, you're always coming very kind of, ah, we're going to change. And then, and then I had to step back and say, okay, these aren't the same challenges as in the Netherlands. And, it's, and there's not the same agendas here and there's not the same problems here. So you first need to kind of really look, observe, and, and the good thing is when you're an anthropologist or, or an ethnographer, you sort of do some of that anyways. <laughs> Listen closely, drill down on things. I think that was part of what my trajectory at least was. And at the same time, to look at what are the structures that are going to make it impossible for me to do any change, and those need to change first. I think that was our, um, our management structure was problematic, um, in my view. I think there was a lot of vocabulary that was missing. People just didn't really know about. Um, so in Dutch, we call it, we have a, a plate in front of your face. So, so it's sort of, you're just not seeing it. 
Um, and so when I had, when I started, I started with one-to-ones, uh, and I could see that some people were very conscious. I mean, the younger generation has been taught in a, you know, in a post-colonial paradigm, uh, and at least is quite well-versed in this. Um, but there's others who aren't. Those are usually the people who are in power positions. So it's about kind of finding that balance and at the same time understanding that, that this kindness and these ways of kind of getting people to see where you're coming from, not by you telling them this is what we're going to do, but actually by showing that there's, there is that problem and listening to what they've done. And many people here, and that's, I think, the lucky part with the Pit River, and that was more than in the Netherlands, people were already committed to a lot of this sort of work. And that's where the Pit Rivers is kind of this schizophrenic institution almost, where on the one hand, on the back end side, there's a huge amount of really exciting stuff and post-colonial teaching happening and writing and projects that really kind of, you know, very early on, contemporary art was being brought into the museum in the beginning of the 90s, you know. So for, for a British institution, that was really early. And at the same time saying, but why is it still so that what we're seeing, why is it that? what we're seeing on the front-end side of the museum has not um, has been changed, but not in such a way that it influences the kind of meanings that people find in the museum. And the other thing that I think we, I noticed is, um, and I had started to notice that in the Netherlands, and I must say I was completely oblivious to it um, until hashtag decolonize the museum, that there were for a lot of people, it was really uncomfortable to come into the Pit Rivers Museum. And those were not the people who had benefited from empire, but it was the people who hadn't benefited from it, who were at the receiving end of the violence and the perpetuation of, of colonial you know, systems of, of um, systemic racism and, and systemic classism, which is very present in the UK. So I think that's where um, we needed to somehow make sure that staff could hear that? And how do you enable people to hear what is really difficult to hear? I think that was one of the big uh, challenges. My next question, you know, you mentioned the anxieties that I think are central to your the way that you're trying to frame things and also a motivation for why we're even doing a decolonized work mm -hmm. in the first place. I think there's another flip side of that, though, where even with the projects that we've seen with the the projects that have been discussed within this conference, you can see that there is a certain level of anxiety in terms of evaluating the projects themselves. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how it is that we can even evaluate these decolonized projects, these decolonized exhibits, or the decolonization broadly in a museum. That's a very good question. I think that the sort of understanding of what we're now, what the effect is of what we're doing is extremely important. Uh, and I think that's why when we, because uh, there was a bit of hesitance when we said, are we going to install contemporary art on the Chlora balcony, which is our learning balcony, um, which was quite critical um, contemporary art, which is Christian Thompson's uh, work, the Museum of Others, and the, we bury our own uh, combination of the work. And so what we decided is to say, and, and this has become sort of a, a, a way of, I think, working that works quite well in the UK saying we're going to trial it we're going to you know see does it work does it not work what does it require and so we said we'll do some research before audience research before we install do, change the installation and then do work after we change the installation and then kind of see what sort of 
other interpretations does it need? How is it yes or no doing what we hoped it would do? And so I think that was sort of a, a good example of where we were doing kind of some research on, okay, decolonizing it. And this is sort of the most visible decolonization that we've done so far, um, apart from art, contemporary art installations that were all um, uh, kind of temporary. So, um, and what came out, we had a quite extensive report um, done. Uh, what came out is that actually there was a huge change, uh, both in people understanding what we were trying to do, but also in people um, staying longer with the exhibit. Um, at the same time, our commercial kind of marketing and film um, uh, hire of the uh, museum therefore changes too, because when Endeavor, which is the, uh, the kind of sequel to Morse, Inspector Morse, I don't know if you guys uh, get that. <laughs> so there's Lewis and there's Inspector Morse, and now there's Endeavor. And Endeavor was wanted to film in the museum, but obviously they want to place themselves in the 50s. So they were, oh, we'll have to film around that, you know, <laughs> this new, new kind of intervention, which kind of proved it does make a change. And I think that's where, for a museum like ours, that sort of um, limited in its cap um, capabilities in many ways. So on the one hand, we don't have a big special exhibition space. We need to work with our... What, what is drawing in the audiences is our um, permanent galleries, which is different from many other museums. Most museums draw in and they market their special exhibitions and that's what drives their audiences. We have nearly half a million visitors, which is really a lot for an ethnographic museum. Um, and they come for the permanent displays, mainly plus our programming. So I, I suppose that's sort of where um, one example is the Christian Thompson. The other one is where we want to have more information about what is it that people are finding in our uh, permanent space right now, permanent displays right now. I think it's very multiple. And so I've, I've only done a very kind of superficial, and that's what I showed in the, in the presentation, um, kind of I constantly look at TripAdvisor and kind of the comments online and the comments in our in our uh, visitor books. And those are the ones where I get the kind of, you know, the percentages are, are easy to get from TripAdvisor because they just tell you how many people are saying you know, shrunken heads or totem poles or Indiana Jones or you know, treasure troves, etc. Um, but it would be really interesting to have much more data there. And um, knowing how you know, neuroscience is really kind of bringing more and more uh, information to us on how people construct um, their um, ideas around things, but also how we can disrupt those ideas and how um, visual literacies are kind of formed by yes or no, continuing similar sort of stereotypes. Um, I think there's, there's a huge possibility there. Um, one of the things that we are going to be experimenting with is augmented reality. We're also going to be experimenting with sound and with uh, projections, just to sort of, on the one hand, disrupt the space, but also, so it's been proven, for example, in, in, in literacy that, um, and this might be a bit too much, but that um, the, the brain, depending on what it reads, 
will build more empathy. And the same goes for music, listening to music. And so if you, uh, by reading a lot of historical liter uh, literature, it actually, um, there's, there, are, there is some empathy being built, but not a lot. By um, literary fiction, uh, literary fiction, there's a huge amount of empathy being built. So what if we wouldn't be, you know, that's why the diversifying the curriculum is so important that it's not just empathy for whiteness, but it's actually a broader empathy that is being built in our brains. And so what if we could do the same with the, pers you know, the multiple perspectives on objects? What if we could make those readable from many different perspectives? Would that also influence the brain? And I'd, I'd be very interested to, and as we're part of a university, can actually go and reach out and see if that's you know if, if some of the neuroscientists uh, would want to work with us on those sort of um, examples. And so I understand that um, augmented realities are also and in the gaming industry are also one of those. That's some of the things that are that they're questioning. So we're going to be hopefully writing a proposal with some of our IT people and um, neurologists to do some research. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, lastly, I was interested in, in your talk, you situated the Pitt Rivers Museum within this Monmouth. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a movement so, or something yeah, like yeah. that. But. Well, no, Monmouths are, are a monument. So in, in Germany, in German, you have Monmouths and Denkmals. And Monmouths are sort of almost monuments of shame, warnings. For, so the Holocaust, for example, is a Mahnmal in, in Berlin. And um, you have Denkmals, which are really kind of commemorating and aggrandizing you know, moments that were something that you can be proud of. Um, so there's a difference between those two concepts. Could you characterize uh, the Pitt yeah. Rivers in this Monmal uh, yeah. movement? So why why I um, why I, I started thinking about this is because a, a journalist asked me this question from the student um, paper actually from the Cherwell, and so she uh, wrote to me and said, "Would the Pitt Rivers Museum could it be a Monmal?" And so I, I just started pondering it this is over the last couple of weeks and thinking, well. I don't think it's a manmal because it's also much more. So it's a manmal and denkmal all in one. And I think that's where we're not um, doing enough effort to disentangle the parts that are really kind of about celebrating human creativity, the many ways of being, the many ways of knowing, of coping, of people, because those are all in those galleries too. And I think that's where people really get excited about the Bit Rivers and the fact that we're not regionally you know, bounding, uh, but actually typologically kind of saying there's lots of ways to solve problems, many different problems, and that's great because that's humanity. It's, you know, it's a very kind of resourceful um, way of being. But there's so many issues interwoven in those displays that are not being said, you know, this is problematic. So, and that's when I was thinking, okay, so on the Benin bronzes, I think is one of the cases. I don't know how much you guys know about the Benin bronzes, but, you know, 18... 97, there was a party of British officials who wanted to go to talk to the Oba. There was lots of conflicts already lying underneath and the British were waiting for a moment to sort of go and, and <laughs> kind of solve the situation for them. And uh, they were told not to go because there was an important ceremony happening. They went anyways, they were killed. Um, they had been told, so in that sense it wasn't. But the British kind of, you know, then organized a punitive campaign, went and ransacked the whole and looted the whole kingdom, killed lots of women and, and, and children, um, and just brought all of the loot to the British Museum, who then sold it to other European museums to pay for the punitive campaign. So it doesn't get much worse than that, you could say, almost. So, um, but all of that is right now on display as 
the um, art from the Royal Court of Benin or, you know, the British Museum has, and I think the, you know, Black Panther, the movie sort of references that in the way that they've kind of portrayed um, this sort of spoilages of empire um, being in museums and not being talked about as what they actually represent. And I think that's where uh, there's there's lots of conversation, and I didn't have the time to go into that, but there's there's conversations going on in Europe, which are called the Benin Dialogue, for many years already, but they're now coming to a moment, thanks to Macron, uh, who's you know, the French president, kind of saying, we really are going to make a lot of work, and I want to see big changes in the next five years. And that's how France works. There's a kind of declaration of the president, and then things happen. Um, and, and so... The, these conversations are coming to a moment where last March in Cambridge we had uh, the Benin Dialogue where people from the, the Prince um, Akenzwa from the Royal Court was there and people from the Ministry were there and lots of directors and, and cur curators from museums who have big uh, Benin collections were there and we kind of said we need to change this and we, and we came up with a sort of an intermediate possible solution. And so next October, we're having another meeting in uh, Leiden, where hopefully kind of the coalition of the willing, as we, <laughs> the Dutch are calling it, um, are sort of saying, okay, let's really move forward and make a change here. Um, if that, so in the Pit Rivers is, is a particular case in the Benin Gonzales, because they're not, we have them on loan from a trust. So we would need to go in conversations with the trust, you know. Um, but whatever happens, I suppose we need to kind of say, maybe that case should be empty or only one or two objects. And, and then kind of that could become a manma where you actually talk about empire and how, you know, this exploration went hand in hand with exploitation, where, you know, millions of people were enslaved and killed, where, you know, so, so just all those things, which are starting to very tiny little bits becoming part of the British curriculum also for schools. And it was the same in the Netherlands. There's, there's hardly a lot being said about empire and, and kind of the problems of colonialism. Shot down, stuffed, and hauled to the museum for display. These species made their way here through the circuits of empire. These people, who are being exhibited as examples of a long extinct primitive phase of humanity, are actually living on the land today. Why are they stranded in prehistory? Here with Rachel Minot, a freelance researcher, curator, and artist here at the Museum Ethnographers Group. So I wanted to talk to you a little about a little bit about your talk. Um, you had a really interesting talk about the exhibition done at the Birmingham Art Museum, kind of a new approach on looking at colonial issues in contemporary settings, which I found really, really interesting. One of the things that we wanted to chat with you about is your work with activists and other people who are interested in really pushing some sort of a political or social agenda for a group of people, which has oftentimes been very difficult for academics and museum folks just broadly. So could you talk a little bit about your experience with that and how it's worked? Yeah. Um, so the exhibition, The Past Is Now, um, Firming of the British Empire, 
as you say, focuses on the idea of the contemporary relevance of the British Empire to people's lived experiences today in a particularly Birmingham context. Um, we worked with six co-curators who were activists, um, but it was done collaboratively. So um, there were the team in general, as I said in my presentation, but made up of 15 of us. So um, 15 of us, six of us activists by name, um, and then um, two freelancers to work with the museum permanently. The thing is, when you have uh, an activist agenda, but it's people who have been brought together for a project, it wasn't a unified activist agenda. So it was an activist energy more than it was a specific thing that was being pushed. The only um, unifying idea was this idea that we would decolonize the process of doing this co-curation. Um, I'd say one of the main problems we faced was that um, decolonizing is a really nuanced term. It means something quite differently to different people, and actually the way that you act it out is very specific. Um, and at the start of our project, we did not define the version of decolonizing that we were all working towards. And that actually ended up creating problems because um, for some people, it meant centralizing a um, the person of color narrative and having individual stories being told quite richly, but um, with kind of the British Empire as a background context. Whereas for the museum, it meant very specifically looking at our role in perpetuating um, the empire today and empire legacies and colonial mindsets. Um, so from that, in the museum's perspective, that actually puts the museum at the heart of the story uh, as a colonial institution and both very kind of self-reflexive on um, the legacy we ignore. Very different to the other version of decolonizing. Um, so... With that being the activist impetus, and we were working from different perspectives, I think that was um, that's something I would advise people to do if, in the future is to kind of say, this is what we're coming together. These are our um, kind of terms of engagement. These are the definitions of the words that we're going to use. Because So in that last presentation, I was also talking about nationalism and having to define that because that's another thing that's been proving to me to be quite um, interesting because for some people, nationalism means... Um, making things available to everybody and for others it means showing the best of the nation and those are very different versions of nationalism and national institutions. Absolutely. Another really interesting aspect that came up after your talk was uh, the role of people of color in museum roles uh, kind of broadly whether it's kind of in a collaborative capacity or I think especially in actually getting people into positions where they can have some sort of agency or say within the institution rather than having the institution have to come to them. Mm. So could you talk a little bit more about uh, this question of how to incorporate more people of color into the museum profession? Yeah. So um, generally I have the feeling that if you are going to try and uh, approach um, a person of color to be um, to be within your institution that you never create a scenario where they're the only person of color in that institution. So if you find that you have an absolutely undiverse group of people, they all have the same lived experience and you want to diversify that in whichever way you mean to, I would recommend at least three posts. One at the ground level because at the ground level is where a lot of the dirty specific work goes on that actually creates a lot of change. The person who does the research goes into the objects, looks at the archives, the things that take a lot of time, um, but are super important. Um, so that's a person who's in a junior position. You need someone who can manage them, or not necessarily manage them directly, but be in a manageable position above them, so that if they are facing institutional racism, they don't have to complain to a white person about that. 
they can find someone that they feel safer to do so to, um, with. Um, and then someone in a senior position above to support that person as well. And someone who's a, a, at all the meetings to have the strategic change in decisions and create a strategic voice. I think if you don't have that particular scenario, you create an environment that seems extremely precarious to enter into if you're asking someone um, who's going to be marginalized to affect institutional change. Because to affect institutional change, you have to be disruptive and you have to be, you, you won't play by the rules because they're not the rules that you want to keep perpetuating. Um, and to do that kind of work, um, you need to feel safe. You need to feel that there's security in your position. Otherwise, you're, you're asking people to put themselves in, in situations that nobody really puts themselves into. And so it's never appealing. So that's my general feelings. Yeah. And we, we had this recent controversy with the Brooklyn Museum uh, with hiring uh, two positions. I think it was two positions. Uh, hiring white curators to do to curate African art, mm -hmm. which I think in the context of a Black Panther movie and it's a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of the social movements that are going on now, mm -hmm. a lot of people are keyed into this in a way that they really haven't been, I think, mm -hmm. at most other times in history. Uh, can you speak a little bit to how what your thoughts are on that particular yeah. controversy? Yeah, so um, I would say that the thing that Black Panther has done particularly is that it's given a shorthand to reference that problem in a way that is globally known. But it's something that people have been aware of for a very long time, about the fact that museums don't represent people of color in a way that makes them feel good, right? You don't go to a place to see yourself othered. And it's not until you yourself experience the feeling of being othered that you know that that's, a that's the level of discomfort that is there. And the Brooklyn Museum controversy is just kind of it's within a series of events that are occurring at the moment in potentially in the legacy of Black Panther because of its global impact, because it's able to um, reach more, more audiences, in which museums aren't getting away with any of this anymore. Like following the, the um, Brooklyn Museum, it was the V&A loaning the um, Ethiopian objects that they had um, stolen um, back to Ethiopia for long-term loan. And their celebration of this aspect when actually it was something to be highly critiqued. Um, and these, this thing has happened a while ago. I mean, ha has happened for a long time. And actually, uh, probably about two years ago, this has been extremely celebrated because the long-term loan gets away from the British Museum's general um, line that they can't think about repatriating because they need a um, act of government to repatriate objects. So what is a big move for museums, because they're moving really slowly, social media pop culture has actually made... Um, a very impatient voice louder. Um, but that voice is impatient because this conversation has been going on for years, as we've seen the, the presentation, the Meg conference has been talking about this since the 70s. Um, and that's before a lot of us have been alive. And now we're working in institutions and dealing with the same problems that predate us. It's kind of ridiculous. And um, I was at a conference um, at the British Museum and um, one of the women um, was presenting. She was Haitian American artist, Gina. Ulysses, maybe. Um, and she was basically saying that I'm, she said she was patient. She's like, I'm really patient. She said, the people younger than me aren't patient. You're going to be now coming against those people who are no longer willing to wait for the slow change that museums make. So I think that's what's kind of catching up to this discipline now is that impatience with a platform 
and now with a language that allows it, the conversation to be had in a shorthand way to get to the sophisticated meat of the issue without having to explain, like, oh, you know, museums are often not really representing cultures properly. Like, Black Panther movie, watch the scene, and then let's get back to being with the conversation at a different level. So you see this as a, a legitimate sea change then, a generational sea change. Yeah, I think so. I think that um, there museums are a make or break point. I think everybody's got good intentions. I don't really think that I've met a museum person that I don't think has good intentions. It's an ideological profession. People go into it because they love it. They will work for free. Um, they believe fundamentally in sharing history and they're passionate about representation. And it's generally like the nicest environment you'll ever come to. But it's also full of um, privilege and unacknowledged privilege. Um, and actually, whenever I have these conversations with people who haven't really had these conversations before, it's not really about resistance to the conversation I'm having. It's kind of like watching them have an awakening or an awokening, as I like to call it. Um, and that's quite interesting because it's, it's, there's a lot of reception. People want to do it, but they don't feel equipped to take it on. Um, and then it does lead to undue pressure on um, members of staff who are people of color because it's seen as they have an equip they're equipped to do it because they have life experience that tells them what the story is and a sense of an internal sense of authenticity about whether or not you're approaching a conversation or a topic with um, the right level of sensitivity if you don't know the topic or the right level of knowledge if you do know the topic but those people those people people of color are um unsupported and in really, really precarious positions in the workforce. So while they might be the most equipped, they're also the least equipped and simultaneously. That's a really important message. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. This was really fantastic. Um, and yeah, best of luck in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this first of a two-part special feature on decolonizing museums, and I hope you'll tune in to our next episode, which will focus on the stories and objects that are at the core of decolonizing initiatives.